On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, staying positive about agriculture and being a farmer. But how lucky are you to be able to work in an industry where you can go outside each day, you've got the beautiful views, you've got cattle, you've got crops, there's always something different to see, something to learn. You never get bored in farming. And powering the header through the paddocks at harvest time. I love getting on the header and stuff. I've got a bit of a competition with my mum about who gets on it. But I don't know, I just love doing this, I always have, so. so I've just finished year 12, so I'm having a gap year. I'll probably go to the mainland and work and then decide if I want to go to uni or not. Yeah, we meet two enthusiastic young women who just love to jump on board the harvesters at this time of the year. I might do that one year, do the program from a harvester. That'd be interesting. It'd be very noisy, wouldn't it? Also, some positive reflections on being a farmer despite all the troubles and hiccups. That story coming up shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday where we talk to a Doran Valley farmer in just a moment who's looking at a very different autumn this year when it comes to irrigation, and he's not alone. Plus some fresh funding for ag innovation in the States and setting up a new robotic dairy. All those stories coming up for you. We'll check the weather as well. It is summer, despite the fact it feels like winter. Hope you're staying warm. You've probably got the fire on. Anyway, we'll find out the details of what's going on. And your thoughts also on any issue via the text line 0438 922 936. That number, 0438 922 936. First up today, a group of Derwent Valley irrigators are looking at a vastly different late summer autumn growing season this year and they're hoping for a good autumn break. Hydro-Tasmania has begun the drawdown of water in Lake Meadowbank to do maintenance work on the crest gates at Meadowbank Dam. And more than a dozen farmers take the irrigation water from the lake. One of them, Will Chapman, says the drawdown of the lake began this week. It's looking a little bit patchy, I'd say. Obviously, there's still water in the lake. Uh, A lot of the river weeds are showing their faces and drying out as the lake is receding. And we're starting to sort of look at where the natural river is starting to flow through, I guess, yeah. which is the Derwent. And you've had to make arrangements for your irrigation system, along with a few other farmers. How has it all gone? Uh, well, all, all the all the irrigators on the Meadowbank system have had to adjust their infrastructure to to be able to pump uh, at this two metre level below full supply. We've all had teething issues. I think it, despite having the hydro facilitating time to allow this to occur it did still come up on everyone reasonably quickly and so the last the last few months everyone's been pushing pretty hard to make sure that uh, they can uh, use their irrigation equipment at this new level obviously the level's still temporary it will we're hoping it will be back up to full supply towards the end of autumn everyone's i think had teething issues i certainly have you haven't really been able to test the systems until the lake's been at this uh, new level. So best laid plans of mice and men and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, everyone seems to be uh, irrigating. I see irrigators spinning around in circles as I'm speaking to you, so that's a positive. Yeah. Now, uh, the lake uh, started um, going down in level this week, but already you've you've had an issue with, with some errant sheep. Ah, uh, yeah. I, again, you you sort of do your best to um, push stock off the waterfront when it's 
dropping down. Otherwise, um, they tend you tend to get bogging issues both with sheep and cattle. And yeah, unfortunately, I've had to go for a bit of a swim in the mud a couple of times this week and uh, drag drag sheep out to to avoid uh, mortality. But I again, yeah, they were one of those things where I didn't quite anticipate where some stock would go, and so I've uh, obviously remediated that by uh, putting in some. Uh, near gates to to stop the sheep getting into mayhem <laughs> so already a little a little few issues yeah rearing their uh, head but, yeah and that's you know that's just one of those ones um certainly other farmers have had issues with their infrastructure in terms of pumps not quite running as they should and pipes with new lines that they're putting in the pressure's not quite running as they wanted and blowing a few pipes uh so it's, this is all part, I guess, of, of learning how to operate under a new system. Again, it's it's not forever, but when the hydro drop the lake this time again next year, we hope that all those little teething issues that we've experienced this year um, won't uh, won't happen again. Obviously, the lake is still going to be dropping again to the six metres below full supply. Uh, that will occur, we hope. Well, that will occur towards the end of March, April, uh, de- depending on how the season uh, flows. And so, again, that'll be a new test for the stock and domestic systems that we're putting in to see whether or not they hold up to the new lake levels. So, um, yeah, there's still a bit more testing to do, but uh, we'll just uh, see how that all goes in the next few months. Okay, Farmer Will Chapman on the uh edge of Lake Meadowbank. Uh, what, why is the uh, water level being dropped? Just explain to, uh, to the listeners out there what's happening. Uh, well, um, if your listeners have uh, been uh, fans of the country after the last few years, they, they may have heard about the lake dropping down. This is uh, the hydro negotiated with the farmers over the last few years in dropping the lake to uh, to manage repairs on the dam wall. So there are some hydraulic rams that operate the two gates on Meadowbank Dam and they need to be uh, refurbished. And so this year they'll repair one lot of hydraulic rams on the gate and then next year they'll refurbish the other side. So we've got two years of Lake Meadowbank dropping to uh, to be able to have those works done. Okay, now there's a lot of recreational users that use the lake. How will they be affected or are they being affected already? Uh, Yeah, so the lake is effectively closed now to recreational users. So it's a shorter summer. Yeah, generally, obviously, people, in my experience, use the lake up till Easter, really. That tends to be the last hurrah for recreational uses. This is the skiing fraternity, fishing fraternity, kayakers, small little sailboats, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they've had to, I guess change their plans for the rest of summer and, and any other holiday activities that they might have thought they were going to do on the water. I do – I have seen a couple of boats pull up and look a little bit – with the owners looking a bit puzzled over the last couple of days. Um, obviously, you know, if you're if you're local, you know this has been occurring, but if you're, if you're travelling around as a tourist and obviously you wouldn't have that sort of information, so arriving at a boat ramp to see the water level at, you know, several metres below is probably not uh, – going to be conducive to dropping a boat in (laughs) yeah exactly now the conditions you're expecting over the next uh few months heading from summer into autumn uh, is it looking like it's going to be pretty average or pretty dry yeah the Don valley is notorious for not having an autumn break it doesn't look like it's going to be particularly 
Wet. So again, this is going to be one of those things that uh, we'll negotiate with the hydro um, as to when the lake level drops to the six metre below full supply. There's there's always been the discussion that if we receive a good strong autumn break, then there wouldn't be need to irrigate through, you know, through April to create a a feed bank leading into winter. Obviously, we we want hydro to get the works done, and so if we are we do hope that uh, we do get a a reasonable amount of uh, rain come through. Otherwise. Yeah, it'll just extend the project a bit longer. Obviously, once the lake gets to that six metres below full supply, no one will be able to use their irrigation infrastructure. So, you know, we we accept that we might not be able to irrigate to our full capacity for the whole season, but that will just be a bit of a to and fro that we've done for the last few years anyway as to when the lake gets to that six metres below full supply. But I can see you walking around with your fingers crossed, is that right? I, I think so. And 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 the hydro, of course, yeah, that we're hoping everyone's going to be reasonable in this the last phase of negotiation, I guess, for when the six metre occur, drop occurs. So we, we'd, we'd always sort of said that we, um, as the farming groups, farming group who are the irrigators for this area, accepted that we might have to cut our irrigation season slightly short, but obviously not to the point where it's going to be so detrimental to everyone's businesses that we have to offload livestock. Good luck with it. Thank you so much. Yeah, Derwin Valley Farmer, Will Chapman on the drawdown of Lake Meadowbank by Hydro, which began this week to enable maintenance of the crest gates at the dam to go ahead. Around a dozen farmers have had to adjust their irrigation infrastructure to cope with the drawdown of the water. One of the uh, other farmers I spoke to uh, didn't say it was irrigation. He described it as irritation. Uh, Guy says traffic stopped on inbound on the Tasman Bridge in Hobart. Maybe a ship is going under. We haven't received any information from the police, but uh, that's probably what's happening at the moment. So traffic delays on the bridge in the south. Fresh funds are flowing for some Tasmanian agriculture organisations after a round of government grants were announced yesterday. They're hoping to really grow the dollar value of the farming industry. So seven organisations that focus on innovation have been awarded nearly a half a million dollars between them to boost their programs. One of those is the Tasmanian Women in Agriculture. Meg Powell spoke to Deb Morris about what would happen from here. We have 14 programs, uh, which we are calling uh, Farmgate programs for women in agriculture. Our women uh, members identified um, individual skills that they needed to develop for, um, for themselves and for their businesses. Um, and even on their communities that they wanted to upskill themselves with. So these, we didn't intend to deliver these um, 14 programs with the help of the grant money with our new and existing partners, uh, and we will see up to 40 sessions across the state. These programs are skill development themes in farm safety, digital literacy, literacy and the use of farm technology, Dam safety, farm safety, and of course farm biosecurity, which is also important, which we've seen today on the farm that we're on. Pasture management, weed identification, super women on rural roads, uh, beekeeping, even a lifetime year management course. That's just a few of what we intend to run out. Loads of things there. It, we certainly have, yes. How long have you been involved with uh, the Women in Ag 
Deb? <laughs> I've been involved since 1994. I was at the first gathering. Um, I had a position in charge of billeting at the first gathering. So, yes, I've been there. Come and gone because of my career. But, um, yes, I've been there quite a while now. And a Ridgey That's Didge up. member. I am. But I am so thrilled that I am seeing so many young women coming in like I was back then myself. I'm now seeing young women taking up these opportunities that we're offering and that's what we're all about, to try and enhance the leadership of our um, and decision-making of our rural women. Now, this um, this grant round has been awarded to a number of other things as well. I mean, there's people working on small businesses, there's uh, Firm in Tasmania, there's a bunch of um, quite exciting programs happening. How is that compared to when you started in this space in 94? Well, Women, women in Farms in 94 was probably a little bit different in, the, in that we had just come through a drought, uh, high, extremely high interest rates, and um, and commodities were lives. So it was to get the women together to, to sort of to empower them. And, and I remember being in that room with 150 other women and looking around and thinking to myself, after we'd listened to the guest speaker, who was speaking about what she did on farm, we were all exactly the same and we could resonate so much with it. And it was just a light bulb moment that we weren't there on our own. Now, we've always been involved in the farm, but we're more so now. And, of course, we've worked off farm too to support us in times when commodities haven't been so good. So um, it's certainly changed, and so the technology has changed. And, and that's why we, you know, one of the things was understanding the um, technology on farm it, uh, was, was high in the agenda of um, our members uh, wanting to do. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's certainly changed. Oh, regenerative farming. I mean, we've all got a little bit of regenerative farming into us, but, yeah, and Carmen farming. <laughs> Lots of those things were not talked about back then. <laughs> well, it must be exciting to see um, so much money being pumped into these innovative projects, I guess. Well, we, we certainly wouldn't have been able to roll out these programs if we haven't had this grant. And, I mean, and, and as, as I said to the Minister, it was quite an arduous um, process to go through to, to prepare the grant application and full, full marks to the executive and, and particularly a couple of women on the executive for, for pulling this together. And, and they are so extremely excited and they're working on it already. I mean, we only learnt about this um, on Monday and the, and the girls have already got their heads down and working on budgets and, um, and getting the partners all lined up and everything. So we're, we're ready to roll, hopefully in March with the first one. Great, great. How exciting. Is there anything you want to add to all that, Deb? I just, oh, I just want to say that the model that we're going to be use, used, using is a model that we've found that works. So there'll be a theory session probably in the morning. Don't quote me on that. This could judge. And then off to a practical on-farm session. So because it's so invaluable that people um, see what they've heard about in the morning, see it in action on-farm. So, um, so if you can go out and see how somebody's um, implementing their succession plan or that how they're taking up the technology or, or how they are doing their pasture management. We're uh, quite excited about that. Tasmanian and Women in Agriculture Chair Deb Maurice telling Meg Powell just what they plan to do with their share of a newly announced set of grant money from the state government. Uh, Wayne, g'day Wayne, he says, Hi Tony, there is a crash on the left-hand lane of the western side of the bridge that's in the south of the state the Tasman Bridge. So uh, take care. You might uh, avoid that area for the time being. And we'll try and get some more information for you when we can. Coming up, setting up a robotic dairy. 
Catch the Landline Summer Series, hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. Landline is Australia's only national agricultural television show delivering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. Ahead of Landline's return for 2023, find the Landline Summer Series on ABC iView. From off-the-grid farming to crayfish, get a taste of Australia with Landline Summer, 12.30pm Sunday on ABC TV and iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 0438922936, our text line number. JT on the text line says, Tony, I remember something of a law recovery bonanza when Meadowbank was lowered in the early 70s. Also, while the level was down, it was catch a perch on every cast with so much less water between the fish. Only thing is you've got to stand in the mud. <laughs> to do it. Anyway, thank you for that. Uh, robotic dairies are not new, but they're a huge investment which can make a big difference to a dairy business. A dairy farmer in southwest Victoria says despite the large price tag, he's happy with his investment after installing a robotic dairy of scale never seen before in the country. Paul Smith's farms 20 kilometres from Warrnambool, milking about 750 cows. He says the switch from an ageing rotary dairy to a fully robotic setup has been a long time in the making. Well, that sort of goes back about, oh, probably five or six years ago now. Um, my current rotary, oh, my, my ex-rotary, is uh, it was getting long in the tooth, and I knew I did have to replace it at some stage. And whatever I did do, I would have to build it on a new site. So I started thinking, and my sort of thoughts were, a new um, rotary dairy, you know, they're great, they're good, good dairy but they're still the same thing we built 30 years ago. So I I sort of thought we got to start looking towards the future because if we build a, a 30-year-old dairy now, it's it's going to be uh, around for another 25 years and it's going to be very old by then. So we uh, we started looking around and I found I found a robotic rotary dairy on uh, good old YouTube probably about five years ago, just playing around. And then a couple of years ago, I, I stumbled across it again and I thought it was time to make some phone calls. Okay, and then if we skip skip forward, you ended up going down that path, Paul. Talk me through what you've built. So we've built a uh, a new rotary dairy, which is fully robotic. This thing's got 40 robots sitting on it with 10 blank spaces, so we can put an extra 10 robots on if we want. Um, and it's pretty much just a regular rotary dairy that actually milks some cups, cups of cows up for you. Is there anything else like that in Australia? There's not really, not on this kind of scale. If we're going quite well, we'll be milking 240 cows an hour and there's, there's nothing really in Australia that's uh, ever been put up like that. There's been a couple dabbled in ro- robotic rotaries before, but nothing for this kind of uh, batch milking scale. How have the cows adapted to it? Cows went in real well. Uh, the first milking's always a challenge, doesn't matter what sort of dairy you put up. So, you know, we, we pushed and shoved and got them all on. That's, we, we did have the whole, well, I think there was 690 cows in then. So it took about five and a half hours. Uh, the next milk, and we nearly halved that time, and then it got better ever, better every milking after that, um, to the point where they sort of they really fight each other to get on. Um, I think that having no one at the bridge cupping up cows is a big benefit for the cows walking on, because it's, you know they're not balking at a person there milking cows. So what's what's your role, or what's what are the workers' roles now in the milking process? Well, I call it babysitting. So we're just babysitting the dairy, really. 
we've got two people still on dairy all the time at the moment. But yeah, one person's in the dairy all the time, pretty much just looking for cows that don't uh, cup up properly. Um, it'll warn you, it'll tell you that they haven't cupped up the cow properly and we just go lend a hand and if we need to, we'll, uh, we'll cup up one or a full set of cups if we have to. How often does that happen where the robot doesn't manage to cup up? So at the moment, we're running at about 7% of the herd. Um, I hope to get that down to about 3% sometime in the future. It's no, no great need for that in any hurry because you know, we're, we're there anyway. But, yeah, the, that's sort of the way I'll be looking at culling cows, another way of culling cows in the future. Paul, I'm sure it, it came with a, a hefty price tag. <laughs> it's definitely come with a hefty price tag and a big weight on the shoulders, but we crunched all the numbers with the accountants, and, yeah, we, we hope it's going to pay itself off fairly quickly. And what's it going to mean? I mean, you're probably not fully realising its benefit, as you said, but as, as you go on, what's it going to mean for staffing long-term? So long-term, we're a long way off getting this right yet. It is milking cows and doing everything it's meant to do, but it's it's very barn orientated, which means you know it's it's a little bit slower than a normal dairy at the moment. So going forward, we're gonna we're gonna fine tune that to our needs, and uh, hopefully we can go from two full time labour units in a dairy down to at least one or maybe half a labour unit for milking. You know, if if we can get it to milk unmanned for for a period of time. That was Paul Smith, dairy farmer, southeast of Warrnambool, speaking with Angus Furley about his unique robotic dairy, milking lots of cows in lots of hours, or less hours, I should say. Uh, let's pause for a moment, have a listen to a conversation between two women about agriculture and farmers. Meg Powell ran into a farmer called Rosalie Rayner at Sheffield. They got chatting about mental health, life as a woman in a male-dominated industry, and just what it is about farming that's gotten under her skin. It's a very tough question, that one, because, like I said, I think farming is one of the most hardest jobs you can ever do. Um, the hours that all the farmers put in is unreal. The returns they get are very average at times. Um, but I think it's just it's something you, you can't actually put words on it, I mean, but how lucky are you to be able to work in an industry where you can go outside each day, you've got the beautiful views, You've got cattle, you've got crops. There's always something different to see, something to learn. You never get bored in farming. So my name's Rosalie Rayner and I live in Sheffield. Um, I work at Castlegate James as their sales rep for Tasmania. And can you just paint me a picture of where we're sitting at the moment, Rosalie? Uh, we're sitting at a lovely property here at West Kentish, overlooking the valleys um, at all the farmland. And right in the shadow of the best mountain in Tasmania. Of course. I would say, Mount yeah, Rowland. Definitely. Rosalie, Castlegate James is uh, teaming up with Rural Alive and Well at the moment. Could you tell me a bit about that? Well, what we're actually doing at the moment is for the next three months, um, we're donating a dollar per tonne of our potato mix to Raw. Rosalie, you've grown up here in this region and in the farming world. How important is mental health? Oh, it's a huge thing. I mean, everybody can know somebody that's been affected in some way, shape or form by mental health. I mean, for Raw to be able to provide this facility, particularly for farmers, because farmers are big, tough men, and she'll be right, mate, and they don't want to admit to, um, I guess, they think it's being weak. Um, this is a, they, they provide a facility that uh, is targeted for farmers, Raw does a fantastic job to be able to provide the service to farmers and know that there is somewhere that they can actually go, someone to talk to, someone they can relate to. 
um, on their grounds. As a woman in the in the farming world, you're encouraged to be fairly tough as well, and sometimes maybe feel like you have to be even tougher to keep up with the blokes. Um, what's it like trying to deal with mental health in that sort of situation? It can be quite difficult at times because, yes, you do feel as a woman in the industry, you have to prove yourself. Obviously, a lot of things have changed over the years, but a lot of times you do feel that. You feel you have to work harder, smarter or faster to prove that you belong in this industry. So, yes, that can take some toil on your mental health at times. This is a fairly new job for you. You only started just at the end of last year, but you've actually got quite a history in the agricultural industry. Where did it all start for you? Well, um, I grew up on a farm out at North Down. It was a mixed um, farming operation, and I used to spend a lot of my time, especially the weekends, with my dad, helping out with harvest or with the stock work. Really, really enjoyed that, and that's where I developed my passion to want to work in the agricultural industry. Um, I've worked mainly in sales over the last 20 years. I started my career um, back in the day at Webster's, now known as Elders. (laughs) I went along to work in a few different rural outlets along the way and then had a um, went and worked at a a fresh produce packing facility at Forth. Thoroughly enjoyed that job um, but needed a change. So that's where I started my career with um, Cascade James. So obviously you were hooked from a young age on, um, on agriculture and and managed to wriggle your way into owning a property, which is really hard to do at the moment. How did you manage it? A lot of hard work, lots and lots of hard work. My husband and I always said from right from the word go, we wanted to own um, quite a few acres. We started small with a little eight-acre eight property. Um, then two and a half years ago, we were actually lucky to be able to purchase our own dream of a gorgeous area, um, over 80 acres. Lots and lots of hard work, but yeah, well worth it. Your grandfather farmed, your father farmed. Now you're farming here, you're running beef? Uh, yes, so we just run a small holding. We try to turn off at least 80 head per year of um, just fattened cattle up for, to sell. And now your children, uh, they've grown up on the farm as well and they're quite interested in continuing. Oh yes, now all, all of my children have always been uh, interested in the ag industry. Um, my children like, have all participated in beef cattle handling. You know, my kids all love um, the outdoors. They love um, the, being involved in agriculture. Yet, yeah, no, they, they enjoy living on the farm and they always want to help out. Uh, if we ever need to do any cattle work, we've got the three of them to help us out and they can do quite a good job. Sheffield farmer and sales rep Rosalie Rayner chewing the fat there with Meg Powell about life on the land. And if you ever need a bit of mental health support, head over to Rural Alive and Well, their website. And uh, they'll definitely come in contact with you. Still to come, two young ladies who love to fire up the harvester and also a record elephant garlic crop, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Police have separated protesters and mourners after they clashed outside Cardinal George Pell's funeral in Sydney. New national data from the Productivity Commission reveals an increasing number of Tasmanians put off seeing a GP. According to the Commission, Tasmania has the country's highest proportion of people postponing or skipping visits to the doctor because they can't afford it. Almost 8% of Tasmanians delayed or didn't see a GP last 
last financial year. Former Liberal staffer Bruce Learmans lodged a formal complaint against the ACT's top prosecutor, Shane Drumgold, claiming he was driven by malice in his prosecution over the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins. Tasmania police have seized nine unregistered firearms, ammunition and a quantity of illicit drugs from a property at Southport in southern Tasmania. Police say a 56-year-old man from Southport will be summoned to appear in the Hobart Magistrates Court. And the Federal Treasurer says the government is sticking with the Stage 3 tax cuts, but overnight the IMF suggested Australia needs comprehensive medium-term tax reforms to meet higher spending needs and support economic growth. For Bulletin at One. And apparently the uh, traffic now slowly moving on the Tasman Bridge. All lanes open. Looks like there was some kind of soil spill inbound. There you go. Uh, and hello to uh, Sean. He says the weather is changing down here in Dover. And also, Marie, as we cross to the weather and uh, say good day to Luke Johnston. How are you? I'm going really well, thanks, Tony. I've been a bit busy this morning. How are you? Yeah, good, Papa. Beanie's out. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I'm still op- optimistically wearing the shorts, but uh, I do acknowledge that was probably a bad decision, given when I'll be leaving <laughs> this afternoon, it'll be raining and, and cold. Yeah. But uh, yeah, an interesting one today, we've got a cold front coming across Tasmania. It's uh, off the west coast at the moment, and it's going to be very slowly moving across the, uh, the uh, I guess, across the state during this afternoon. It's probably going to arrive on the west coast somewhere around, uh, you know, 1pm, so not too far away, and then eventually make its way to Hobart, Monceston, around the 4 to 5pm window before it decays and, and sweeps away. It's bringing with it some pretty decent winds, particularly onshore about the northwest coast. We've just issued a severe weather warning for onshore gales about the northwest coast. The uh, peak time of the, the winds is probably going to be around 2 to 4 p.m., right along that northwest coast, all the way from Cape Grim to about low head. So pretty windy one. Uh, extending showers and, and rain statewide as that front comes, uh, comes across as well. We're looking at seeing another 5 to 15 millimetres across most of the western north and 2 to 6 millimetres elsewhere. Uh, two, uh, 20 to 30 millimetres is possible about higher ground across our northern and western Tasmania with this front passing us. When that front does come through, winds will be much lighter, but it's going to be fairly cold tomorrow. We might have some snow to around 1,200 metres in the early morning. Not going to settle, though, but it does mean it'll be a fairly cold start to the day with frosts uh, about higher ground likely, but lower elevations not as cold, but expect it to be probably colder than what you've had in recent days. Afternoon thunderstorms tomorrow. We'll follow that up just to add a bit more complexity to the situation, but we're not expecting those ones to be severe, just, you know, more likely popping up during the afternoon. And uh, accompanying all this is uh, a beautiful... Beautiful west to southwesterly swell tomorrow, five to seven metres expecting to arrive during the day in combination with abnormally high tides as a low pressure system moves across the state. So as you can tell, there's quite a bit happening. <laughs> and, and we haven't even got to Saturday yet. No, I was just thinking, you know, it'd be a good reality TV show um, if you put a camera, a hidden camera at Hobart Airport and Launceston Airport and just watch, yeah. watch the people walking off the plane and the expressions oh, yeah. on their face. Yeah. yeah. We're in a it different country. One of those days where you just think, oh, I wish the flight got here just five minutes earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Um, Okay, well, what's going to happen after all the fun and games? All right, well, once, once we get through tomorrow, the low-pressure system that's driving all this weather will move away to uh, the, the southeast of us during Saturday, but it'll bring with it some pretty brisk and, and gusty southwesterly winds, so some you know pretty significant winds likely about the northwest, uh, southwesterly winds in the northwest during Saturday afternoon, looking at gusts up to around 90 kilometres per hour. 
So just shy of our warning threshold for severe weather warning for damaging winds, but uh, not by too much. And uh, you might not think of it with this kind of weather, but uh, fire dangers are actually high uh, today and Saturday, mostly uh, driven by the, the wind. So I guess our, our fire dangers these days are more driven on fire behaviour and how fires might behave. And obviously lots of wind is, is not that great. The psychology of a fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully it rains lots and puts out all the fires, but we'll we'll see. I know there's a couple of uh, a couple of fires going around the state, according to the Tazalet website. And uh, once we get through Saturday, it looks pretty benign from Sunday onwards. We slowly return to average to slightly above temperatures and mostly light winds and and a few light showers here and there, but nothing too significant uh, once we get past Saturday. That's such a comforting word, isn't it? Benign. Benign. Yes. Yes. I wish I was using it today. <laughs> we love that word. Uh, okay, where are we up to? We've got, yeah, we've got warnings, haven't oh, we? Oh, we've got yeah. warnings, yeah. So a severe weather warning for damaging north-northwesterly winds uh, for the northwest coast. That's just you know mostly between 2 and 4 p.m. for onshore gales, so just make sure your trampoline's tied down before then, I guess. A gale warning for western uh, and northern waters between uh, southeast Cape and Cape Portland for north-northwesterly winds. A strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, all the southeast inshores and both the central plateau and southwest lakes for when that front comes across. A warning to sheep grazers is also current today for the Fernal Islands, northwest coast, central north and uh, northeast districts. Tomorrow, there's a lot less warnings. A strong wind warning for northern waters from Sandy Cape to Wineglass Bay, excluding Bank Strait, Franklin Sound, and also for the southwest coast. Leading us into the coastal waters today, northwesterly 20 to 30 knots, reaching 35 knots ahead of the cold fronts, and then easing to 10 to 20 knots behind the cold front uh, during the afternoon, early evening. Uh, winds will shift 20 to 30 knots about the northwest late evening in the ramping up period for Friday. Uh, winds through Bass Strait for much of Friday be westerly 20 to 30 knots in the offshore area, but uh, most winds around Tasmania and the coastal waters will be light and variable as a low pressure system sort of floats over the state. The swell today west to south Southwesterly, four to five metres, increasing to five to seven metres tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, uh, westerly, building to one to two metres today and two to three metres offshore tomorrow. Up the east coast, there's a southerly below one metre and a northeasterly around one metre today, increasing to one to one and a half metres tomorrow. Good. Significant wave heights, only 4.4 metres on the west coast right now and uh, about 1.2 metres on the east coast. But you'd be better off not going out there on the waters, wouldn't you? Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. I mean, surfers might be interested in the, the southwesterly, but yeah, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't like to be a freshly shorn sheep on the northwest coast at the moment. No, no, no. I heard, I was talking to Rick this morning, apparently in Europe they take the sheep inside. <laughs> well, was he, was probably, he pulling my leg? Probably he do. He was saying something about, you know, they, they build space for the sheep to go under the houses and the houses heat up under yep. the floor or something. Is that real? Oh, uh, yeah. If Rick says oh, wow. it's real, it's real. It's real? I mean, I can't imagine the smell, but it sounds sounds like it might work. Uh, thanks, Luke. Thanks, Tony. Have a good one. <laughs> Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all that information on that weather. And uh, keep listening to ABC Local Radio, whatever you're doing, and uh, we'll keep you informed as to what that weather is doing. going to be a very uh, interesting uh, couple of days. Coming up, uh, we'll talk to a, a couple of young ladies who just love to get out on the harvester. I've never been on a date before. I've always wanted a relationship. From the creators of Love on the Spectrum, meet some love bugs who found the search for true love almost impossible, <laughs> but they're filled with hope. I want someone smoking hot. I'm hoping it'll lead to something amazing. Fall in love all over again. I'll remember this forever. Better date than never. Tuesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, just talking about the weather, they're certainly not the sort of weather you'd like to go out harvesting in, but uh, there is a heap of activity on cropping farms at the moment. These days, it's not that uncommon to see women driving the big harvesting equipment either. Uh, Larissa Smith, our reporter, jumped into the cab of a header at Hagley in the north to chat with two cousins who really enjoy their summer jobs. You there, Nate? Yeah. What we'll do is go back to your right there, down to the centre of that pivot, and we'll peel off that headland back down along towards your house there. Yeah, sure. You want to jump in with Nina? Yeah, yeah. So my name is Nina Gibson. Um, I'm just harvesting uh, grass seed outside Mill Farm. And explain what's on the front here. This It's like a type of comb, I guess. Yep, so it's a pick-up front, so we get a windrower to windrow it into rows, and that makes it easier for us to just pick it up on the ground without knocking as much seed out. How many seasons of harvesting have you done? This is my second, just doing it by myself, but since I was a kid from, yeah, about probably 15 years, just with Dad and that, so, yep. You used to the gear? Yeah, definitely, yep. Has it started a bit late? Yeah, definitely. So um, because of the massive rain we sort of had, it's pushed everything back, which is unfortunate so normally we'd sort of be harvesting around Christmas time but we only started canola sort of two weeks ago so um, yeah it's pushed everything back and our wheat's ready at the same time which is a bit annoying but yeah. What's more valuable? Well I guess it's when everything's ready so we aim to have canola sort of around Christmas time, um, New Year's Eve and then uh, grass seed sort of comes next and then yeah then wheat so. And this is your farm we're harvesting on? Yes that's right yep so just I think we have eight crops of wheat in, four was at Bishop's Burn, uh, we've got a farm down there and um, yeah, the rest are here. I did a moisture test about an hour ago, it was 11.7 I think, so that's pretty good, you sort of want it under 12 and a half sort of thing, so, and on a day like this it's a bit iffy as it's not too sunny, but yeah, it's going into the bin pretty well and coming out, so it's all good. Now this is a summer job for you, what do you do once harvest wraps up? Um, well, I'm still at school, so I'm in Year 12 this year, and I also work at Bunnings North Launceston, so um, I've been juggling my time a fair bit between that and sort of just getting to harvest now, which is good, but hopefully we'll get it all done before I have to go back to school. <laughs> Any future plans to stay in agriculture? Yeah, definitely. So um, I want to, you know, obviously I want to try and work on a farm all my life, and um, I want to be a teacher at some point, so I think I might take a gap year next year and go up to New South Wales somewhere and go on a broadacre cropping farm for a bit. But yeah, always want to try and be here to help Dad whenever I can. What about agriculture teacher? I'm thinking so. Like it's, um, yeah, to combine both my passions would be really awesome. I'm sort of thinking more primary teaching, but I'll be able to bring that in, I'm sure, to all aspects. So, yeah. Do you get a feeling that there are more girls involved in these kinds of summer jobs? Oh, definitely. I think it's, it's more and more every day. Like it's so good to see you know, on social media platforms like TikTok, you know, I follow a lot of girls that are living my dream lifestyle on, you know, the farm, um, cattle stations and stuff. And, yeah, I just think it's so good to see everyone out there and giving it a good red-hot crack. And you're working alongside your cousin. You don't get to see that every day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, I've been working alongside my auntie sort of for a bit and then my cousin today and yesterday. So it's, it's been awesome. Like, um, we're really close. We went to the same school. So is there a bit of competition? Because I noticed one header was in front of the other. Yeah, I tend to go a bit faster than you probably should. But anyway, <laughs> I had more lumps in my row anyway. So I, I had to catch up a fair bit. But yeah. <laughs> Which row am I going on to? 
The one between us. Like the headland. Yeah, yeah, so just the one that was next to me. Yeah. I've just jumped in the cab with um, with Molly Spencer. Molly, how long have you been harvesting for? Uh, only the last couple of years, but I've been going with my mum and dad on the header for a very long time, so I've been around it a lot. I guess you would have been sitting in this seat since you've been a toddler. Yeah, yes. And it looks like the bin behind us is getting quite full. Uh, that's not even halfway, so um, yeah, hopefully I should get back to the silo without having to stop. What do you enjoy most about this time of the year? Uh, I love getting on the header and stuff. I've got a bit of a competition with my mum about who gets on it. But I don't know, I just love doing this. I always have, so. so. I've just finished year 12, so I'm having a gap year. I'll probably go to the mainland and work and then decide if I want to go to uni or not, which I'll study agriculture if I do go to uni. Um, but I'll just work for my parents over the summer doing this and then just see what happens from there. Do you like the fact that there's more girls doing this as well? Yeah, it makes it a lot more comfortable to be around having other girls with you other than just men pretty much with you all the time. So, yeah, it makes it a lot easier. Your dad did say that you're a very careful driver. I just like to be careful. I don't want to break anything. That's what I'm most scared about. So, yeah. What's the going rate for harvesting uh, ryegrass? Different for everyone, especially when I'm working for my parents. It's, yeah, I don't know. I'm treated pretty well, so it's not too bad. Do you get paid more than your mum? No. No, I don't think I'll be able to do that. She does all the books, so yeah, that's up to her. Are you right, Needs? Yeah, you're right? Yeah, I'm just, you stopped, I was checking. Oh, yes, I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, you just come up here. So you've lifted your front up, does that mean you're ready to unload? Yes, yeah, heading over to the silo to unload and then go again. Yeah, a little bit of friendly rivalry there. Cousins Molly Spencer and Nina Gibson harvesting Italian ryegrass at Hagley, talking there to Larissa Smith on board the header. Two very positive young ladies. Uh, Roger says, listening to your guests, especially women and young people, you have to be optimistic about the future. Blokes as well, yet certainly do, uh, with the, the people we have on this program. They're very optimistic. Uh, now, if someone came to you with a crazy idea to become a commercial earthworm farmer... Would you pull up stumps and move hundreds of kilometres to make that concept a reality? As Jennifer Nichols discovered, that's exactly what Rowan and Ellie Watson did. They haven't looked back. In fact, their farm has just expanded. So we've got these lovely big covers that provoke the western sun. Rowan and Ellie Watson couldn't be prouder about having worms, millions of them. Oh, wow, you're scraping back the surface and it is just alive with worms. Yeah, so that's our harvesting technique. We use the food, we keep them at the top, and then from there we can harvest the worms. In 2014, the carpenter and his kindergarten teacher wife were working in outback Cloncurry when his uncle posed a question that would change the course of their lives. I was down on holidays and he come and said to me, what are you doing when you finish out west? And I said, I don't know. He said, do you want to come grow worms? And I said, you've got to be crazy. That can't be a thing. But it is a thing. And Stephen Watson, an early adopter of commercial vermiculture in Australia, that's worm farming, convinced his nephew that he was serious. 
and he said at the rate it was growing and he only had a small block so he could only get to a certain size and that was it so he said do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms and so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said well let's give it a go. By the end of that year the Watsons had packed up their lives, scouted for land and settled on a property at Stony Creek not far from the Woodford Folk Festival site in Queensland. They started with just nine raised beds. Now they have 138 with recycled tin roofing, shade cloth and sprinklers to keep the worms moist and safe from ever-optimistic predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that, a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and... Yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. Their business, Rural Earthworms, grows reds, tigers and African night crawlers for domestic composting worm farms. We collect all these animal manures, it gets pasteurised, so we can burn off any weed seed or any sort of bad pathogens and then we start the composting process and then basically at the right time we can put it into a mixer we mix in lime and cornmeal we feed our beds every friday harvesting packing and deliveries take another two days the family supplies a national company that transports their worms to Bunnings stores throughout northern new south wales and queensland householders use them to keep kitchen vegetable scraps out of landfill composting worms convert organic waste into nutrient-rich garden fertilizer in the form of worm tea and castings or worm poo. Most of your reds and your tigers are normally only about 75 millimetres long, whereas your nightcrawlers can go 150 mil up to sort of 250, if not, I have seen bigger. I've seen them as long as my arm. <laughs> Business has boomed, spiking during the pandemic. Every week they consistently sell around 150 large and 120 small boxes of earthworms. The last few weeks have been both exciting and intense for the couple. Their uncle retired and 58 new worm beds have been carefully relocated from his farm. Mr Watson never imagined that business would get this big. I kind of always just assumed that it would sort of stay as a bit of a hobby to work in with my carpentry, but once it sort of got going and we started getting a lot of beds and that demand was there, we sort of found that, okay, well, it wasn't really worth doing the carpentry anymore. The worms needed the time. So we just sort of, that's when we started investing in more worm beds, more infrastructure and just trying to keep up with it and it's been great it's really especially today to look around and see all these worm beds in the new areas yeah it's really amazing they also collect worm castings and bag them for sale to locals 18 kilos in a large bag and that's enough for about three square meters of garden mix it into about that top sort of 10 centimeters of soil because that's your root zone for a lot of your veggies and your flowers basically the nutrients from there will spread out We did a test in one of these bags and it was a year later and it was still fine. It was just put up in the cupboard, out of the sun and yeah, perfect. Ellie Watson manages marketing and orders as well as helping her husband with social media. A lot of people don't even know that worm farmers exist so it's always interesting talking to different people and helping them with their worms and their gardens. And I get to pass all the interesting questions on to Rowan. I call him the worm guru. Earthworms are hermaphrodites which means they have both male and female sexual organs. Your reds and tigers they will have to find a similar size worm so they can't mate with a worm that's not the same size because they won't line up together and when you find a pair of worms they look like someone's tied them in a knot. Being hermaphrodites they both will exchange sperm for their eggs so they've both got eggs both got sperm so they swap and then they go off in their own directions and basically lay their eggs as they travel. African nightcrawler worms, which are also popular as fish bait, can produce cocoons with or without copulation through an asexual reproduction process. The term is parthenogenesis. 
so they can actually fertilise their own egg. Ellie Watson, what do you like about being a worm farmer? The lifestyle is definitely the best. We get to work from home and it's different. It's a nice break from teaching. And yeah, and it's lovely that we can involve the whole family. And speaking of family, you're expecting <laughs> very soon, hopefully within the next three weeks. <laughs> And you've got two littlies already? Yes. So Jack's four and Molly will be two. They must just absolutely love having all this area to be able to run around. Yes, they're um, naked and wild and free children, I think. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best way to describe them. Yeah, no, they're great. And it's such a beautiful lifestyle for them. They always help with the worms and lots of animals to look after. And yeah, just freedom. That's Ellie Watson from Rural Earthworms. And also we heard from Rowan Watson speaking with Jennifer Nichols. A little bit too much information there about the unique business surrounded by worms. Uh, Ted on the text line. G'day, Ted. He says, Tony, animals downstairs, people upstairs in European farmhouses in winter. It is a real thing. I've stayed in such farmhouses in Switzerland. Good on you, Ted. Thanks for that. And you can add in the worms underground. So you've got three levels now. Well, a hobby farmer from Coffin Bay in South Australia is now the official record holder for the biggest elephant garlic grown in Australia. Elephant garlic is not scientifically classified as garlic. It's more closely related to leeks. But John Thompson knew he was onto something big when he harvested this year's crop and found some monster bulbs. Brooke Neindorf spoke with Mr Thompson about the record backyard crop. So originally I, I went and harvested some a wild patch of garlic in near Mini Ribby and then successively over the seasons I've split it up and selected the biggest each year to grow and each year they've just got bigger and bigger and each year I've selected the top 20% the biggest 20% to plant again and each year I've gotten bigger and bigger and we're finally starting to hit Australian record sizes. It was a difference between that giant garlic the elephant garlic and and maybe the, the normal garlic that everyone might know about. Um, it's actually a type of leek and it's a little bit more mild tasting than normal garlic uh, but it stores much better than normal garlic it's a lot more sticky uh, and just a bit more of a mild flavour. And you said they're about breaking records, tell us about what you've just done recently. Uh, so I've grown the biggest elephant garlic in Australia, it was 1092 grams, the previous record was 827. And so how far off is that the world record? Uh, about 100 grams off, yeah. Uh, so next year, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a crack at the world record. What did you have to do to get the Australian record, apart from grow it? <laughs> uh, I had to get it certified through Australian Giant Pumpkins and Veg Supporters Group. Um, so I had to go down to my post office and get it signed by a JP and certified. And show a, a weight that it, that it was? How did you have to do that? Uh, so I had to go on some official scales, and that was part of the post office. Their, their scales are officiated. Um, there was a heap of criteria, so I had to chop the stem within two inches of the cloves. Uh, roots had to be no more than six millimetres long, and there was some other criteria as well. Was it uh, an easy process? Not really. It was, it was a bit daunting mentally going in, thinking, oh, you know, if I do something wrong, maybe I can't qualify or, yeah, because I knew I had a record and I really wanted to make it count. (laughs) And so, obviously, only 100 grams off the world record. Is that what you're aiming for now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Next year, I feel like I've got a fair chance. Do you think people will be coming for your record now? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
And so is there a way that you can, you know, what are you trying to do next year to maybe try and beat your your own Australian record but maybe aim for that one, that world record? Well, every year I've, I've gotten bigger and bigger since I've been growing it. So I'm going to stick with what I've been doing and just selectively selectively plant the biggest ones and give them plenty of room and plenty of love throughout the growing season. Coppin Bay hobby farmer John Thompson. John's record was officially recorded by the Australian Giant Pumpkin and Vegetable Supporters Group. AGPVS is the certifying body that recognises and keeps track of Australian vegetable and fruit records, which includes weight, length, circumference and produce per plant. And while carrots and pumpkins are popular record holders, elephant garlic is not huge in the Australian record books. In fact, John's elephant garlic has set the record for others to beat, as Paul Latham from the AGPVS explains. Well, I'll tell you the truth, that's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so how has he beaten the, the previous one? Uh, well, there was one um, previously not here in Australia. So, um, so he's, he's actually beaten and made a new record at the same time. He's very lucky. I mean, what we uh, hope for is to have a... Um, Let's put it this way. There's not every vegetable grown has got a record attached to it. So he's come across with this elephant garlic, which is actually quite an impressive thing. And he has now established a record for the garlic here in Australia, which is uh, fabulous. With a, a super, uh, super-sized uh, garlic of that, you could have a, a record for a, a pea or a, a something like that, something minuscule, but of merit that we, we find uh, worthwhile. So he has got the Australian record, though. It is oh, official? Oh, yes, he's definitely got the Australian record, official, yes. yes. Do you think now that the, the first one then has been put forward that more people might come forward with elephant garlic? Is it a very popular uh, vegetable? No, it's not a popular vegetable at all. <laughs> no, it's the first time um, anyone sort of suggested it, in, in a sense. There's lots of things that are, um, how can I put it, um, like pumpkins are amazing, for, for an instance. I mean, they're pretty popular. People eat pumpkins and all that sort of stuff. Now, elephant garlic, I don't even know if you can eat this thing properly. I mean, I'm sure it's edible, but I don't know uh, what it tastes like or anything like that. It's just there's amazing world of vegetables out there. Anything that's out of the ordinary, you know, it, all of these weird and wonderful things that we uh, figure that uh, needs a record. Uh, if it's the first one or if if someone overseas has already grown one, we'll compare it to the way it's been weighed and measured over there. Well, you might see some more uh, elephant garlic coming through with this uh, this new new record uh, broken and, and also set uh, over the next couple of years, Paul. Oh, look, that'll be fabulous. You know, uh, I, look, I'm all for competition, that's for sure. <laughs> it's great fun. We uh, Like, I, I've got the uh, record for the tallest sunflower in Australia. Uh, it's not a world record, but it's the tallest sunflower in Australia. But I've been hoping that someone will break it because then I might even give it another shot to break it again. That's Paul Latham from the Australian Giant Pumpkin and Vegetable Supporters Group speaking with Brooke Nindor for more online of the record-breaking elephant garlic at ABC Rural. On our ABC Rural Facebook page, you can find a, a photo of that uh, uh, garlic, 1,092 grams. That's a big garlic. The guy's holding it in his hand and it's sort of falling at the edges of his hand, if you know what I mean. And just finally, uh, hi, Tony. Yes, Raw were very good five years ago. That's why Farmer Bill is still farming today. Good on you, Bill. Keep smiling and keep farming. That is our country hour for today. Uh, We will catch you after midday tomorrow.